Welcome to the Rise Network podcast show, a podcast dedicated to help you reach your dream lifestyle through investing in real estate. We're going to be sitting down with new, intermediate, and experienced investors to talk all about real estate and how it has changed their lives. If you're looking to scale your portfolio or even just get into real estate investing, you're in the right place. Make sure to tune in. Hello, everyone. You are listening to the Rise Real Estate Investing Podcast with your host, Austin Ye and... And Mayu. What's going on, everybody? Austin, how's it going, man? You guys are selling every single wholesale deal before anyone even has a chance to respond. The fuck is up? You sound so defeated, by the way. I just want to call you out on your voice voice right now. Um, You're talking... You're just bitter that you weren't fast enough to get to the deal yesterday. (laughs) Just shot out a 10 acre deal yesterday. I'm not going to say it's sold because we are waiting for deposit. Generally, there's been times, not much, but deposit doesn't come through within 24 hours and the deal's available again. Doesn't yeah. happen too often. But yeah, we sent out a deal yesterday at 6 p.m. and I think we sold it by 9 p.m. or so. Damn. Nah, this is, uh, it's not me. Honestly, I, I, wasn't, I haven't been looking at buying real estate a lot, but a lot of people, like whether it's a mortgage client or like one of my coaching like students, They'll be talking to me about a deal. Like I'll send it to them or, or something. And then they'll be talking about it. And I'll be like, dude, like if we're still talking about this, like a day later, it's probably gone. Like, like, there's no point. Like, what are we doing here? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I, and I guess uh, you want to make sure that your buyers are capable of doing their own due diligence. Cause the last thing you want to do on the mortgage side is recommend a buy. Oh, 100%. And then yeah, it's like, yeah. this is like, Hey, this is what I think, but. Make sure you also do your own due diligence as well. Yeah. yeah. Half the time I just forward the emails and I go, I didn't even look at this, but like, I just see the, the you know, the key points and like, it looks decent. Like, let me know what you think. So it's up to them. But yeah, what's going on? What else is going on with you, man? How's everything? Going? Um, Yeah, no, just on the wholesaling side, things are picking up. Um, we're, we were interviewing some dispo managers. Yeah. So we ended up closing on a property. It was, uh, it was a duplex and it's supposed to be vacant possession. Um, the seller obviously didn't end up not obviously but didn't end up getting rid of the tenant so then we ended up assuming them which is never a great thing uh on the day of closing when they're signing papers with their lawyers the lawyers reconfirmed if the property was vacant to which the seller said yes and signed off under oath of all of the documentations that said that it's going to be vacant and then they confirmed again at 2 30 p.m on closing if it's vacant seller said yes Turns out that one of the unit wasn't vacant. So it's like, okay, like what a pain in the ass. At least we can run a one unit and we'll work on the legal side of things to get the other unit out or go after the seller for whatever the damages are. Turns out today that both of the units are tenanted still. Oh, so it's fully tenanted pretty much, which which disrupts our business plan because it's the business acquisition. We want to turn over the units or not turn over, just renovate it and re-rent it out. That's what our plan was. But obviously that can't be the case now. Um, So we're trying to do a hold back with the seller because the funds have not been released to the sellers yet because immediately we told them that it's not vacant and that's the funds were held. How did you guys find out it's not vacant? Do you guys go there? No, the seller basically told us. They're just like, oh, I went in there and I just found out one of the tenants are still there. And then the next day they're like, oh, both of the tenants are actually still there. Um. <laughs> so they were honest with us. The seller's not very competent, um, to say the least, right? Yeah. So yeah. we're working on that situation right now. But at least the fortunate thing is, is that the seller's going to be compensating for obviously the cash for keys and all of that stuff. So in good faith, I have to negotiate the lowest amount as possible. Mm. And I don't want to take the seller for a ride because I just don't think it's the right thing to do. But at the same time, if it really does take 10 or 15K, whatever the case is, to get each tenant out, at least I know peace of mind, I'm not paying for it. Yeah. And then we still have damages and things like opportunity costs. Now, here's the thing. Our lawyer said that um, credit negotiated as low as possible in good faith. But you know, and most people know, the lower you go, the longer the eviction period is going to be. So you have to get in four or five months. And then it becomes like, how do you quantify opportunity costs then it becomes an argument of that so i'd rather pay a larger sum and get them out by the end of the month because i can't quantify i can't quantify opportunity costs but it's really like it's a gray space where you can argue against it pretty easily Um, that's my life right now (laughs) Now, it's always some shit going on yeah a day in the day in the life of a wholesaler right pretty much pretty much yeah (laughs) how about you what's what's going on here um my my son's been good uh I don't remember where 
my last update was because last time I think we talked about Dundas. So I've hired someone full-time now for the mortgage business, but they're starting March 7th. So currently I'm like dying with like mortgage work. Like it's just too much, uh, which is good though. Like I like clients are coming in, uh, servicing everyone, but it's honestly the back end that's a mess. Right? So like I'll get in trouble for my brokerage saying like, Hey, like where's the compliance? Where's like this? And I'm like, Fuck. Like I'll I'll get to you later, right? So it takes um, so much time, yeah, and it's, yeah, yeah. it's a nuisance, and, right? And look, I'd I'd rather work on like active files and like people that have closings coming up and shit like that. And like even if I get like a little slap in the wrist and like some fines from the brokerage, I think it's fine for a little bit until like I've got my guy out full time, right? So the mortgage side is doing really good. Our flip is going like it's it's progressing well. Um, we're at the stage of putting in the kitchen and stuff like that. And more excitingly, I think we're we're moving February twenty eighth out of out of downtown. So that's taking a lot of time and effort. Just you know, ordering a shit ton of furniture, or like we're finally getting to the final stages of all the shit we need to get done. And then I'm also doing a, a minor rental at my parents' house. So that, like a lot of like personal life stuff this month is like really eating into my time. But hopefully March will be better, man. So yeah, hopefully. moving always is a time consuming task. It's, it's gonna take you months to get the furniture, and when you set up there, you're probably gonna need a few days off to get things up and going to. Hopefully, exactly. uh, actually, sorry, your your admin wouldn't be starting by then, so you're still yeah, yeah. Admin one or no? My 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 mortgage team guy wanted to start on March first, and I was like, dude, like I'm I'm literally moving February 28th. I think we start you on March 7th, so it'll it'll be useful because we're still doing not like a full reno, but we're we're renovating pretty extensively, like the new house once we buy it. It is new, but it's kind of like got like a lot of like builder basics in it, so we're like just upgrading it. So. We'll see you being a little bit bougie, man. A little bougie. Yeah, I was going to say a little bit bougie. <laughs> so we're just going to jump into today's episode. People have heard enough about your story and my story. <laughs> um, and we have a really interesting guest today. I'm very excited about this episode. Uh, our guest's name is Dan. He's been in the real estate game for about four or five years now. Started off as a civil engineer, if I'm not mistaken, and now is in real estate full time. His first couple of projects are quite interesting. They're actually challenging projects that a lot of like, you know, newer investors wouldn't do. He was doing severances. I guess that's his bread and butter. But then he also does conversions and completely separates all meters, including the water meter as well. No, we're not separating the water meter. We're separating the water bowl um, submeter in, in specific. So we get into all of that in today's episode. Um, there's a lot to learn about. I definitely learned a lot. It got my and uh, my head spinning on different strategies we can implement in our portfolio. So hopefully you enjoyed this episode. If you do like subscribe, rate, do whatever you can to support the podcast. And we are 103 likes. I want to get, please, can we get to 110 by the end of February? Is that asking too much? <laughs> Anyways, <laughs> we'll jump into today's episode. Thanks, guys. Hello, everyone. We are joined with our very special guest today, Dan. Dan, how's everything going? I'm good, fellas. How are you guys? Doing awesome, man. So, um, so for anyone that doesn't know you, Dan, like, uh, what do you do in the real estate side, personal business, work? Give us your rundown. <laughs> sure. So I got into real estate investing in 2018. So I guess that's about four years ago now. Um, I'd kind of been around it growing up. My parents did a little bit of real estate investing. I would not call them savvy at all, but I think there was a point in time where the average person could kind of buy a property and uh, and it would be okay as long as you were, were wise about it. So it kind of kind of grew up around it a little bit. I had a career in civil engineering uh, for about the past 10 or 11 years, which I've recently left to go into real estate investing full time. Round of applause for Dan. <laughs> thanks, guys. <laughs> Making thanks. that big jump. And so, yeah, when it comes to real estate investing, my bread and butter is severing properties, finding and assessing large properties for severability, I guess. I've done some other stuff too, like just kind of traditional burrs on a duplex, uh, some condos, a little bit of Airbnb. Um, and that's kind of where I've got to today. I'm actually starting my first brand new build in a couple of weeks. So that's been kind of my, the biggest task on my plate right now. Okay. So a lot of, a lot of juicy topics there. I, I think, well, you know, I almost want to jump ahead to what you're doing today, but I want, I want to know how you got started, right? So back in 2018, how did you get started? Um, and what was, uh, what were the individual pieces that you did kind of leading up to today? Sure. So my, my very first project was actually a severance oriented project. My mom and her husband had bought a investment property in Woodstock in 2014. And at that time I, I wasn't interested in real estate. I was just kind of young guy being a young guy. 
this corner property was huge though. I mean, it, it went about 150 feet along the adjacent street there. So we kind of, my mom looked at it and they kind of wondered about, is this property severable? Could we sever off a lot onto the adjacent street? Was, was it so, a, so it was like a corner house there? Yeah, it was a duplex they bought just as a traditional rental. But it went 150 deep, meaning it was like along a corner. So you could kind of split off the back and have a separate lot, I guess, in theory. Hopefully. In theory, yeah. yeah. So essentially, when my folks reached out to the city, the city said, okay, yes, there's lots of frontage from left to right, but it's not deep enough. So they said the only way you could really do that is you would need some property from the house next to yours. So a bit of time went by the house next to it went up for sale and I grabbed it right away. Um, but here's the thing though. I didn't just grab it because of my career in engineering. I went ahead, uh, rolled through the zoning. I drafted up a drawing based off like free public information, like survey information. And I took it to the city. I had the city tell me, yes, we'd support this. And then I bought the property. So that way I kind of already went into it knowing that I have a pretty good chance of at least severing off one lot. That's essentially how I got started. Now with doing so, I, like I said, I ended up buying the house next to my folks. I just did a traditional rental with that. And, uh, that has actually turned out to be a really good investment in itself. I only bought it to cut off the backyard. And next thing you know, the thing's been stable, cash flowing really well. And it just goes to show the power of, of just mm. investing in general. Long-term buying holes. Yeah. So I think this brings up, we can actually dive into the topic now, since it's your first example. Mm. Um, what type of due diligence process goes in severing? Um, so you mentioned that you took a look at the city website and took a look at what was it? The, is it zoning plans? What type of documents did you take a look at? And yet walk us through like every step along the way. Sure. I've actually got this systematized to a certain degree when it comes to assessing properties for severance. So I'll kind of just go through how I look at these. Um, and it, it's something I've kind of worked on and improved upon over time. But first and foremost, there's two big factors that'll be either a non-starter or not. And it's essentially what is the zoning? What does the zoning allow? And what is the property? What is the size? What is the frontage? What is the depth? So when I looked at this first one and, and any, any of these, really, I go and find, I look at the property first and I look at what, what's the frontage. Also, is it a corner lot? Where is the house situated? So if I see a corner lot that go has a hundred foot, 150 foot, 200 foot backyard, that's, that's a good start. You know what I mean? From there, you end up looking at the zoning. So if you're looking at some zoning and let's say it's an R2 and they require you to have 12 meters of frontage and you only have nine, well, from there you have to make a decision. It's do I proceed? Do I attempt to get a minor variance? And a minor variance is when you're trying to do something with any property, be it a severance or, or a deck, whatever and you need city approval or committee of adjustment is what it's called you need their approval to bend the zoning documents to fit what you're doing so to clarify something when you say nine you mean 18 but it gets cut in half nine nine right yeah 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 okay so one another thing you have to look at as well is the existing property is going to have to conform as well to the zoning document so there are times where there's a nice big backyard or side yard you want to you want to sever off but in doing so you might completely put the existing house out of conformity with the zoning and the city might not buy into that so that's another factor you have to look into so for example if it's like a duplex or triplex and now the lot doesn't support having it then they're going to say you got to take it down that's a potential or they might make you get minor variances on the existing house or maybe that's enough to make the city not support what you're putting forward. So that, that's something else you kind of have to look into. So these rules are very city specific, right? It's not like the Ontario wide, uh, it's not like Ontario building code where like there's certain standards that have to be met for all like properties. This is like every city's got their own regulations on minimum frontage depth, um, parking, et cetera, right? They do. And you'll, you'll find the denser the area, the, uh, I would say, I won't say looser the restrictions, but I find them a little bit easier to work with. And I also find cities 
are more likely to grant you minor variances. So there's a big difference between, say, downtown Hamilton and uh, a, a small town on the other side of the province. You know what I mean? Because the small town is going to require you to have much more frontage area. Um, another factor, too, is and this is kind of the next thing I look next important thing I look at when I'm looking at this. It's the infrastructure. It's is there a water main in front of the lot you want to sever? Is there a sanitary sewer? In some of these smaller towns, there may not be. And at that case, you're, you'll have to put in a septic bed, septic tank, and a well. Mm-hmm. When you have to do that, the zoning in those places require the area to be literally like, like five, ten times greater than what it would be in town because you need that area to support a septic system. Not only that, but not only is it incredibly expensive to do that, but generally it's probably the land's probably not worth that much too. Then in that case, it's not. And like another thing to look at too, even when you're in the cities, okay, let's say, let's say you got a corner lot and you want to sever off a property onto the adjacent street. You have to look at that adjacent street and make sure it has sanitary and it has water main because sometimes little side streets may not have that. The way to do that are a couple of ways. Some of the, some of the more advanced cities will just have that information available. You can go on their public mapping and just look it up. The cheater way to that is you can just go on Google street view and just look at the street. Is there a sanitary manhole in the middle of the street? Is there a hydrant there? If you kind of go back in time on Google street view, is there blue paint marks on the ground? You'd be stunned how much you can find out just by looking at Google maps. One, like I'll give you an example. I looked at one, it had a very obvious side yard that could be severed, but I had kind of looked at it and I was wondering why hasn't someone already done this? I looked at Google street view. I didn't see anything, but then I went back in time on Google street view. Sure enough, there's a blue paint mark running right through the side of the property. So there's a big water main running right under it. So anyone that would have bought that property for the purpose of severance would have been denied right away because you have to know what infrastructure is underneath the property as well. Oh, mm-hmm. wow. That's, <laughs> yeah. I didn't even know that, that that's what it meant. Like uh, the, you're talking about like how they spray like just blue, like thing on the sidewalk type stuff, right? Yep. And it's consistent everywhere. Blue's always water. Green's always sanitary and pink's always storm. You, you might find the odd, uh-huh. the odd time it, it differs, but just poking around Google street view, you can find out a ton, a ton, a ton about like what's actually going on under the street just by looking at the street. Cool. That's awesome. Yeah. No, I, I just wanted to ask as well, in terms of the minor variance. So the first property you applied for minor variance, that's right. Or no, you. Yeah, I did. So I've done three of these for myself. Now, um, my first one, which was in Woodstock, I needed a ton of minor variances for both the existing house, uh, for the new lots. But the great thing is my property is like almost right downtown Woodstock. It was truly a vacant lot. I wasn't even knocking down one house to put up a couple in its place. The city was highly in support. It was such a great use of land uh, to add foot traffic, essentially, to the right to the downtown core. So how did you know that they'll be in support? Was it just obviously an educated guess? Or did you look at precedents of people who did it before and got it? Like, what's that process like? So when I looked at the one in Woodstock, I knew with all with almost complete certainty that I could get one lot severed there. I looked at the zoning and um, I looked at the setbacks and everything else. When you can conform to the zoning 100%, they almost cannot say no to you. You know what I mean? You're essentially, you're meeting every requirement that the zoning asked for. There are some other factors, like I said, infrastructure and a few things above and beyond that, but you can almost do it by rights. And I have done one like that, which I'm sure we can talk about. When I did the one in Woodstock though, where I started needing minor variances is I actually went for two lots and I got two lots out of it. So I got one lot that they allowed me to further sever into a semi-detached lot. So I got two essentially out of it. And that's what required all the minor variances there. So did you develop that land or did you just sell it off as a kind of like a a parcel? I'm, I'm working on it. I'm Okay, literally digging a hole in about three, four weeks to start the build of my semi-detached uh, house there. So I have also sold land. I did another one where I tore a house completely down. All right, sorry. You did this uh, a burr on the existing structure of the house that you bought. You severed the land. How long does that take you? And then what did you do after that? There's kind of two big, big steps in here. There's being granted the severance. 
Okay. And then if you're granted a severance, there'll be a whole bunch of conditions to fill. So when I was granted that severance, I had to do a couple of things. Like I had to get locates to show that there was no, excuse me, infrastructure under the ground. Um, I had to get a formal legal survey. So when I applied, I got a boundary survey done. So that way, that way, that's how we determine the minor variances to have a survey to find out where the existing house is and go from there. And then some of the other conditions are just like uh, paying a parkland fee. Uh, sometimes it's a percentage of the value of the property. Other times it's just a set fee. There's some legal, some legal stuff involved too, like a, some certain agreements you may have to enter into. Woodstock was good to me. They did not make me service the lot as part of the severance. The other properties I've done, they've made me service it as part of the severance. So one of the biggest challenges with this when they make you do that is you only have one year to fulfill your conditions. And to service a lot is not always the easiest task, especially because in that year, you're going to be up against some winter months. Some cities don't allow you to service it. It's also the most expensive part of it too. So um, again, luckily Woodstock didn't do that. Other cities will do that. So it's kind of a can be important to know what conditions are going to be put on you. And the best way to do that is all the severance conditions and all the cities are all public information. You can easily go on, see what conditions are being put on similar severances. You can also, and I, I did this as well. Um, you can go to public meetings, sit there, see what happens. And I did that before I ever applied. I went and sat in one for three hours and watched all the other applications go through uh, see what kind of questions got asked. See, I saw a lot of public outrage at a few of them, but uh, luckily these little severances, I've had zero public pushback. Yeah, I guess that's the best research you can do. Actually go boots on the ground and check out what other people are doing, the questions, the pushback they get so you can better prepare yourself. The great thing is in the Zoom era, you can literally just go on YouTube and watch any nice. town's committee of adjustment meetings and see what they get asked. You can even find out which counselor is going to give you a hard time. Like there's... You can learn so much just from doing that. So let me ask you this. I know we're going, going getting deep down. We're going to move on this topic. So don't worry guys, for the listeners out there. Um, but how long does that process typically take? And um, when you buy the property, are you just going clean and then doing all the due diligence after? And like, yeah, I just, I'm just curious because we've never done it ourselves. But mm -hmm. Mayu and I have a property that's either like it's prime to sever or build on. Mm. Oh, and sorry, cost, cost as well. That's another big one. Mm. Sure. So to get the severance, to get granted the severance through the committee of adjustment, call it two months, maybe, maybe three if, uh, if you have to jump through a few hoops. Once they give you the severance, you have a year to fulfill the conditions. However, I am getting word that the province uh, may be changing that to two years, which would be extremely helpful, especially with the cities that make you service a lot. What's the cost on something like that? Like with the applications, do you have to like hire someone or... Cost very greatly and, and, and great question. Um, I always represent myself. So on all the severing I've done, I go to committee, I represent myself, I state my case. And because I just left the engineering world, I'm a drafter by trade and uh, I've got some survey experience. So like I do my own drawings. I'm extremely self-sufficient when it comes to this. I would say the average person does and should do uh, hire a planner, at least the first few. Um, a planner is a professional that specializes in this kind of work, uh, navigating zoning, uh, city official plans, and making a case for you and your severance. So that that's kind of how you, I go about it and how I would suggest maybe someone trying to do this for the first time would go about it. Okay, okay. Um, so, so really what's holding you up now, I guess, is after you got the severance, you did the, I guess, whatever you satisfied, whatever conditions they had over the course of like a year or so. And now you're really in the development phase, right? Like you're, you're redeveloping it, you're, you're building on it, et cetera. Yeah. That's essentially what I'm doing. And like I said, I, I've done other ones where I've just got the severance and, and flipped the land. Um, I've got a, another one where I'm going through the conditions right now. And again, I've got them all done except the servicing portion of it. I find it super cool that you started off in this, but I guess it helps for sure that you're an engineer. And I guess the advice for anyone that, that doesn't have that technical background like myself in Austin um, would be, you know, engage a city planner 
to, to kind of fight your case and tell you what the best use of that line is as well. For sure. Um, I would say too, it's always been kind of my philosophy that if I look at something and it generally conforms to the zoning and city planning is in support, Mm -hmm. I personally will not hire a planner. If I'm doing something where city city planning is not too sure about it, they won't give me a clear answer. Maybe they don't even like it. I'll hire a planner to push this through at a more professional level. Okay. That, that makes a lot of sense. Sorry. Did we go over the exact cost of what that process uh, looked like? Uh, If you were to hire it out, what it would have been. Sure. When I did the one in Woodstock, that cost me about nine grand to do it myself. Again, that's me doing my own drawings, my own representation. So that was about give or take three grand to make the application about three grand in legal costs with my lawyer and another three grand in survey costs. How much would it have cost if you like hired like a planner or like just want to be like hands off? I think you'd be running between 40 and 60,000 to hire a planner. So essentially you would incur the same cost that I incurred. And then on top of that, you'd have a a planner uh, representing you. And then you can also have a planner fulfill a lot of the conditions as well. Gotcha. Okay. Okay. That makes sense. So obviously it pays to be able to put in the sweat equity in something like this. It does. It does. Um, I guess one thing I would touch on too is uh, one cool thing about this is uh, the return on time is can be uh, quite good as well because um, essentially I'm doing this all from my desktop, right? I'm not on site. I'm not even really hiring contractors or anything like that. It's uh, it can be, it can be quite beneficial to someone kind of looking to do, I'll call it even almost a desktop investment. You know what I mean? Okay. Where did you go on after this? Cause I know you said you had some redevelopment, um, and I'm cognizant of time and I want to make sure we cover as much of your story as possible. So, uh, where did, where did you go on after that one? Sure. So after that one, I actually did a completely traditional burr on a duplex in Kitchener. Um, it's actually right near where I live, which is great, but um, I found it off market. It was the first uh, property I picked off market. I found it by just telling everyone what I wanted. And I eventually said the right thing to the right realtor. Uh, she was helping me look at condos. And I just told her, I said, Hey, I'm looking for duplexes. She just happened to know of one and I stayed on her, went and looked at it, essentially put in an offer, had the first one rejected and then put in another offer and I got it. So that one there was, was interesting. Um, it was a purpose-built duplex that the city did not recognize as a duplex. Essentially it had split mm-hmm. aluminum wiring. So that means it was literally split in the seventies. Right. So I, did a renovation on that. I don't want to call it a duplex conversion per se, because it, it had always been a purpose-built duplex. So I essentially, both tenants just left. I didn't even have to ask really, which was such a bonus. I know that's not the traditional case. So I spent about four months renovating that. And the most interesting thing I did with that property is I actually split all the utilities. I split the gas, split the hydro, I split the water. Um, I guess one thing to note is when I bought this thing, the heating in it was this awful stuff that was only around for a few years in the seventies called radiant ceiling heat. It is literally wires in the ceiling that get hot and heat the house. (laughs) So what I ended up doing in the upper unit, I just drywalled over it. I abandoned it in the lower unit. I ripped down the ceiling to do the proper sound and fire separation. So once I did that, I, there was no duct work, no HVAC. There wasn't even gas to the building. So I brought in my own gas connection. I did two meters and I did two completely independent HVAC systems. So two furnaces, two ACs and completely split the duct work. And that has been, I'm going to say a great decision because each tenant has their own account with the gas company. And one of the best benefits is there's like no noise transmission throughout the building through, through HVAC. Um, and I would say the other benefit to that too is smart tenants. They get it. They know that they're going to have complete control over their climate, that they won't have to battle with another unit. So that was an interesting thing I did at that property. And the other thing I did that I haven't seen a lot of investors do is I actually split the water as well. And I've managed to submeter it and pass cost along to my tenants. 
So let me pause you there. Okay. So you split every single utility, which is a huge advantage because essentially now your tenants also feel like they've got their own place. Like they're not doing this entire like shared cost or the landlord doesn't have to pay for it. Um, what's the cost of each? Cause I think hydro, what I guess you can just break down each one. Um, and in today's world, if you think the costs have gone up as well, cause I don't know when you did that one, but what would the cost of splitting each meter or each utility be? Um, that one hydro was already separated. Okay. So that was more upgrading. Um, HVAC was definitely a big cost, right? Because I'm now bringing in gas to completely independent HVAC yeah. systems. Um, a couple of years ago, I did it. Now I, I it was in the neighborhood of around 30,000 for all the HVAC work. So, uh, um, you're including the duct work, I guess. Yep. No. Yep. And, and two furnaces, um, two ACs. you had to bring in two gas lines from the city, like from the main connection, right? One gas line, two meters. So it splits uh, at my house. Okay. got it. Okay. And then, yeah, I, I split and submetered water as well. So what I ended up doing is when I had the ceiling ripped down for the renovation, I noticed that splitting the water would actually be quite easy. It was literally a T that went up and down for the shower, T that went up and down for the kitchen. So I ended up cutting the lower unit off and running a few new lines back to the utility room where the water came in. So I split the plumbing. And then what I did is I put a submeter on each water line and each submeter goes on after the public city meter. Uh, in addition to that, I bought a unit that hooks into the submeters and it publishes all the water usage for the respective units. And it's cool. It'll show you the water usage day by day, month by month. You can kind of see exactly what's going on with regards to water and what's behind your walls, essentially, uh, just by logging on and checking your account. And it's not too expensive to do that, I believe, right? It's you might as well do it if you are doing a duplex conversion. If you're already in that process, I, I swear I most say, people don't do the water splitting. Do they? I, they don't. And you know what? I I don't think a lot of people know that it is an option. Like a lot of people will split the water fifty fifty or sixty forty, mm-hmm. and essentially, I'm I'm still doing that in a sense, but I'm actually quantifying the usage for each unit. So it eliminates arguments over water usage. Um, It gives me that benefit to see the water usage. It can tell me when there's leaks and, um, and there's some other, other benefits like, like that as well. I'll give you an example. When my lower unit had someone move in and didn't tell me about it, I just spotted it in the water usage because you could see the water usage all of a sudden just go up by a third and it stayed that way. So there are some benefits to that as well. Yeah, so I actually did that with my duplex conversion as well. One thing that I found is, is that, and correct me if I'm wrong, it does not help appraisal value. Not market price selling it, but appraisal value. It doesn't necessarily help that. So it's more of a long-term sort of thing where you can keep your expenses down, but you won't necessarily refi that money out that you put into it. Is that is that your understanding as well? That wasn't really my experience on this one. So when the appraiser came through, he, he actually commented on it a couple times saying that this is really neat. I haven't really seen this before, but I can make the argument as well that if you are able to pass water costs along to tenants, you've essentially increased your net operating income and you've increased the value of your, of your asset. So I could kind of make the argument um, that if this system allows you to pass along water costs to tenants, it's already kind of paid for itself just by installing it. So the city won't bill the tenants directly, right? Like you as a landlord are still paying the city, the water bill in total, and then you're collecting from the tenants. Yeah. Essentially I still pay the water bill to the city and then I'll flip an invoice to both my tenants to be paid on top of rent. And so far it's a little over two years into that property. Now it's gone. It's been completely fine. I know you started a business on uh, surrounding this entire service, providing it to other investors, especially I think for, I mean, I guess it really makes sense for, for multifamily properties. Um, what does something like this cost for like an average investor? I know you do a lot of the work yourself and now you've got a business. So from the business side, um, what would this cost someone to do? Sure. So like just for a standard duplex, uh, you can just kind of easily set this up. The equipment itself is around 1100 bucks. 
Uh, there'll be cost in addition to that to split the plumbing. That is extremely dependent upon uh, the property you're doing. I mean, like a 1970s bungalow is going to be far easier than a two-story century home. And so essentially with, with mine, it took my plumber the better part of a day to split the plumbing. And then, yeah, just to touch on what you said, Mayu, um, I started showing some other investors this setup after I installed it and kind of started passing around information. And um, I had so many questions and such positive feedback that I actually got in touch with the manufacturer and um, started a little business around this, uh, both supplying the submetering equipment and helping landlords and property managers submeter water and pass along the cost to tenants specifically focusing on small and medium-sized properties. Does this process make sense for someone who's just finished a conversion? So you want to go back and add it in. It's probably a much more pricier to do that because you got to start tearing things again. Absolutely. So if you didn't split the plumbing and especially if you just finished a renovation, it's probably not a candidate for you. It is for during a renovation or a new build. Or there might be some instances where the water can easily be separated. Or maybe maybe instead of installing one meter, I put one at the shower and one at the kitchen. And your reading is just the combination of two meters. So it, it really depends on the complexity of the plumbing in the building. Awesome. Okay. And then if people want to learn more about those services, obviously the link will be down below in the show notes. Yep. They want to reach out to you about that. Moving forward, so that was your next project. I don't think we're going to go to every single project going forward, sure. but why don't you highlight quickly a couple other ones you did, and then we can dive into the one that you find is most interesting. For sure. Um, so the other, I did a couple severance projects after that. And um, so the one I did, I I bought a house, I sight unseen. Actually, the next two I bought sight unseen. Uh, I bought a house, tore it down. Um, severed the property into two building lots and I flipped the two lots. That one was a wild one. That one, I bought the house repossessed from the bank actually. And not only did I buy it sight unseen, there was like no pictures or anything. This house was just destroyed beyond belief. Was it a bully offer? <laughs> no, <laughs> there was five, there was five other offers and, uh -huh. um, I got it for under asking too. So, um, essentially I bought that one. I never even saw the house till I got the keys. It was about as horrifying as you can imagine in the house. There was stuff everywhere. It literally looked like the people just left in the middle of the night. That one there, uh, a rather big risk I took on that one. I actually tore the house down before I got approval to sever. Let me just stop you right there. The house, was it in between both of your lots that you would have yep. severed or under, so it wasn't off to one side? Yeah. So there's kind of couple philosophies when it comes to severing properties and doing these little infill projects. This one is an example where the, where it was a big lot house was in the middle of the lot. And in order to do any sort of redevelopment, you had to tear the house down. The one I did in Woodstock and the other one I did, I was able to keep the house and the keeping and severing option far more profitable and far less risky than actually tearing something down to sever it. And the reason why is when you retain the house, there's still value there. You can still rent it out. The house may still go up in value, which has been the case with what I've done so far. When you buy something to demolish it, even if you get a good deal on it, like I did on this one, there is money invested in it. You know what I mean? And, and a lot more than just a couple tens of thousands to just do a severance. You know what I mean? I'm curious about this one because Austin, I think this one's more applicable for you and I. <laughs> so when you're demolishing the building, um, were you required to pay back the mortgage? First question. <laughs> yeah, didn't, I was going to ask about the financing. <laughs> didn't do it with a mortgage. And okay. there's one of my biggest tips for today. When you have the bank involved in severing properties and demolitions and whatnot, it becomes challenging because they've lent you a mortgage on a property the way it is, and you're going to alter the property. You're going to cut off land. You might demo a house. Cash is the way to go on this if you can. It's not the only way to go. Um, if you have a mortgage, you can do something called a partial discharge, which is essentially where the house gets reappraised. You may be required to pay out a portion of the mortgage if the value's taken a hit. So it's not necessarily lost money, but you could, you could have to pay out a portion of the mortgage. Mm. Okay, well, the so value would take a hit because the house is demolished though, right? Like wouldn't the value come down to just land value? 
it, it would on that one. But again, in my experience, if you do cash, you don't ever have to worry about it. And actually the other, one of the biggest holdups when you're doing this, if you have the mortgage and you're going through the partial discharge process, the partial discharge can be one of the conditions. Now, all of a sudden you're at the mercy of the bank who typically don't have much experience with this. It's a very niche thing. And I definitely uh, did a lot of running around and, and whatnot, trying to explain to the bank what it is I'm doing and work with the city and my lawyer all at the same time. It was definitely challenging and buying things in cash is definitely the best way around that. Okay. And so you demolished the house um, and, and sorry, what type of structure did you say you were going to put on there again? So I didn't actually build that when I sold those two lots. Oh, okay. um, but the plan was, uh, cause I, I first considered building on it and the person that's bought it from me did exactly what I was going to do. Uh, two good sized single family detached homes with basement suites. So essentially two duplexes. Hmm. And you don't think you could have just built like a larger multi, I guess, zoning dependent, a larger multifamily in that area. Yeah. The zoning definitely prevented you from doing that. And, um, uh, just in getting to know the neighbors there, they would have had their backs up as well. Hmm. Um, they said they were no neighbors gave me any flack over it. The house was in a horrible condition. They were very happy. I came in and did what I did. Yeah. Similar to ours, my yard zoning is not ideal. Yeah. <laughs> and the, I, the I would have requirements are a bit of a pain in the ass. Yeah. Just to give you an example, this lot had a 72 foot frontage by 150 feet. deep, So it's close to about a third of an acre. So the interesting thing, when I looked at this, I didn't care what the house looked like. I, didn't care in the slightest because when I did this, I already did my drawings ahead of time. Um, I, I figured out exactly what would be required to sever it. Everyone else that offered on the property, and I ended up knowing a couple of them, they were looking at it as a flip or a fixed and flip or an investment yeah. property. So when they're looking at this as 200, 250,000 to fix it, because that's how bad the house was, I didn't, I looked at it completely other way. I'm like, oh, 16 grand to demolish it. And, mm -hmm. and sever it. Right. So it's kind of a, just a totally different perspective. So one question I have is, is that when you sell land that's unserviced, generally, I don't know about this marketplace because I don't follow land sales. It's not as liquid, I would imagine. Right. So what's the game plan there when you've severed land and I assume you don't go and service it. How have you find the sales been or like, are you sitting on it for a while? Um, this one wasn't too bad but I was willing to kind of come down in price to make the sale happen because I wanted to move on to other projects. Essentially, yeah, land might definitely take longer to sell. Um, depending on if you put a screaming price on it, there probably won't be like a multiple offer situation. Uh, there's potential for due diligence to be involved. And if you're buying land, I would highly advise you make offers with due diligence because of some of the things I talked about earlier, zoning, infrastructure, all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, I sold the two lots as a package to a builder and in doing so I didn't fulfill the conditions on the severance. I sold, I sold the property approved. I didn't actually finish any conditions. Okay. He, he went and did that. Mm, so you found the right buyer profile to take on the project and go forward with it. Fair enough. Um, insurance, sorry, last, last thing right. on my end insurance. How does that, how does that work? <laughs> yeah. Uh, was a bit challenging to say the least. I, uh, I had to find someone willing to, uh, insure a demolition and, uh, you know what? I just found the right broker, shopped it around. Uh, I want to say it was ABEX did the insurance on me only about 900 bucks. It really wasn't too bad. So 900 uh, a, what, a month, right? No, the year. What? Yeah. Really? Okay. <laughs> yeah. So it was uh, essentially vacant land after that, right? Like, after yeah, yeah. I, I told them. Okay. Plan, yeah. Fair enough. Yeah. I told them I plan to, to buy it, remove it within a month. And I did do that. And they just said, yep, you do it. It's just vacant land. So they were willing to work on me. Don't get me wrong. I had a few other quotes that were three, four times that it's just, you really got to explain to them what you're, what you're doing. Got it. Okay. So, so we covered the land severance that you did in Woodstock, the duplex conversion that you did in, I think you said Kitchener or Cambridge or one of the two. Kitchener, yeah. Yeah. Kitchener. And then, uh, this was a demolition slash land severance. Um, was there anything else that we missed? Do you guys have any other projects? Sure. I'll, I'll tell you about one more. I'll say that actually probably the most traditional severance one. Um, this one was in Wasaga beach, uh, bought another property site unseen because I already went and figured it out ahead of time. 
that I could buy it. It was a wholesale deal. So my first wholesale deal, essentially this one had a hundred foot frontage by 150 foot deep. I looked at the zoning. You only needed like, I want to say about 35 feet frontage. The area was literally double what was required. This one was the very first buy rights one I did. I did not even need a minor variance to, to sever this one. So on this one, I went to council. I represented myself. I was in and out in about 10 minutes because they just really didn't have any questions or anything on it for me. The numbers on this one, essentially, I, I paid 410 for the property. I put about, about 60,000 into fixing up the existing house. It's not a not an overly great home, but I mean, we made it look nice. And for someone, it's going to be a great kind of vacation property in Wasaga. Um, sold the house for 500,000. Wow. I, broke e- <laughs> I broke even on the house mm-hmm. and I still own the lot, mm-hmm. which is going to be worth north of 300,000. Wow. So the house was already, you were fortunate that the house was on one side of the lot then in that case. Okay. Exactly. And that's both kind of where you're able to sever a side yard or a corner lot. That is definitely the best thing to target. It's ones <laughs> where you can keep the house. How do you know where the house is located? Are you just looking at like city, like planning documents that have that show? Yeah. Like, how do you even obtain like How that? much of the frontage do you know it's yeah. taking up? Yeah. Sure. Um, the way I do it is just use the city's public mapping or, or GIS as it's called. Um, they almost all of them will have the property lines on there. Uh, they'll have a measure tool. It'll show you where the house is. Um, you can also use just, just Google, uh, maps. You know what I mean? Just measure from the house to the fence like that. Mm. Something as simple as that. Uh, there's other ones where I've went to site. Actually, that one I did a teardown on. I, although I never saw the house, I went to site. I actually went and found the two front property bars. All properties have their corners pinned with metal bars and I measured it myself. You know what I mean? So there's, there's things you can physically do as well. Do you think every property out there has a metal bar in the ground that you can go out and find? Um, Some older ones, the bars may not be there anymore. I mean, like time and things happen to them, but figuratively, yeah, most properties at least have some of their bars intact and newer properties should have all their bars intact. I'm getting a bit greedy here. This is in regards to our property again. I feel like it's a free coaching session. (laughs) Thank you, man. Um, For in terms of minor variance, what have you found the most difficult? I'd assume frontage okay to deal with depth okay to deal with how about side side variance difficult because our property mayu what do you mean by for side? sure like there's not going to be enough <laughs> oh you mean on the side of the house the side you mean on the side of the house yeah because it's right by like, then, it's literally will touch the other lot right and you probably oh, do, right? oh okay okay so yeah you if you're going to develop a new house the gap between the two houses yeah yeah <laughs> essentially it's going to come down to how bad the city wants it. I mean, like if they really want some infill housing and typically side yards, four feet is quite standard and you guys need one foot, they might work with you. It it depends on kind of uh, what your ask is and if it fits what they're looking to do. Yeah. After this podcast, I'm going to quickly share my screen and share, show Dan property and see what he thinks. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Okay. All right, Dan. So I I think that's great. I think we shared a lot of nuggets and I I think me and Austin got a lot of value for sure out of this one as well. Um, Dan, what's your, what's your company called that um, splits the water meters for anyone? Cause I I think that's the important part that we kind of glazed over there. I just want to make sure um, any investors that want to split meters that are doing conversions, like just reach out to Dan before it's too late. Sure. It's called waterbillsolutions.com. And there are some photos, some information, and I'm always happy to answer questions as well and provide some information. Um, website's still still being worked on as well. I'm more of a real estate guy and less of a tech savvy guy. So, I mean, I'm, I'm looking to get as much info up there as possible. Awesome. Perfect. All right, Dan. So generally at this point in the podcast episode, we like to ask our guests now two questions. It's now changed. Uh, so where will we be, where will we be seeing you five years from now? What's your goals, business, real estate, anything? Um, five, 10 years. I'm really looking to get the passive income, uh, up and going. So I've got some coming in that's, that's good and well. And it was, I felt enough to leave my job, but I'm looking What's for your passive income right now. Like right is now? It real estate or is it something else? Well, right now it, it's my rentals. I don't yeah. have a ton, uh, my new build in Woodstock, I'm looking to build hopefully four units. I'm actually in a, 
bit of a odds with the city on whether I can get basement suites, but essentially, yeah, I'm looking to ramp up the passive income, uh, looking to build on the water submetering business. And I'd like to have all my businesses at a point where they're, uh, relatively self-sufficient and, and self-sustaining and I can travel around and, and spend time. I, I love the concept of, of spending a couple hours a week, you know what I mean? Uh, on my businesses. And that's where, that's where I'd like to be, uh, essentially. Okay. Awesome. And so dad, I'm, I'm going to change up this question and I know it's, it's last minute change, so you can answer this either way. Uh, but the normal question is what is the biggest risk that you see for investors out there in, in today's market could be anything um, that you perceive to be a risk. Uh, and then the second thing I'm going to add to this is kind of like, what's the biggest risk that you see in development that people make, right? Like whether it's kind of like misjudgment, it's uh, misinformation, any, any kind of risk in the development side that, that you perceive to be significant. Sure. Uh, I think the biggest risk right now is um, I think runaway prices are risky um, that we've seen. And the reason why I say that is I think the more out of touch that uh, housing gets from reality, the more policy is going to be put in place to knock that back down. And I think that just hurts people more than it helps. So I, I honestly just think policy is my biggest concern right now when it comes to this. And and I can apply that to development as well. You know what I mean? There's, um, and I guess moving on to your, the development portion of your question, it's kind of twofold. So one red tape is always challenging. I mean, it seems like they're putting more and more um, red tape in place. So for example, in, in a little severance, they might even make you do like a noise study. So all of a sudden you're paying for a noise study. Maybe you have to pay for a traffic study. Maybe they make you pay for an environmental. None of this has been my experience to date, but I am seeing this happen. And so I've, I'm worried that, that it gets more and more burdensome as this moves along. With that said, though, um, I've seen the provincial government here in Ontario actually has made some aspects of this a little bit easier. And by that, I mean, they've they've asked cities to kind of get get with it a little bit on the zoning, on the basement suites. So it's kind of a double edged sword from from what I've seen. Really appreciate all the insight you gave today. Dan was a fantastic episode. I definitely learned a lot and I feel like I'm feeling amped to kind of pivot my strategy now. I don't know how you're feeling by you. This is happened um, last time we had a developer on here as well. I think it was Ryan Carr. After yeah. that, for like the next like two weeks, also we just talked about development. I'm like, bro. <laughs> like, <laughs> <laughs> okay, man, I'm passionate. <laughs> I like learning new ideas. So appreciate all of the insight you gave today, Dan. If people want to reach out to you, connect with you, what's the best way to do so? Um, Just... Uh, Instagram, probably it's, it's illis underscore invest, which is I L L E S underscore invest. That's my last name, uh, my water submetering website or Facebook. Um, and I, I guess like on your point, Austin, I, I do help other investors too, with, with looking at severances, assessing severances and whatnot. I've, I've helped other people successfully get severances as well. So that's something I'm open to. Mm-hmm. Jack of all trades. That's awesome. <laughs> okay, guys. Um, if you enjoy this episode, make sure to like, subscribe, do whatever you can to support it. Five star rating. We're trying to get to 250. I don't even think we've hit like 110 yet. So like we're still we working on that. <laughs> but um, until next time, everyone, invest smarter and live better. Take care.